oh, networking is really awkward. No, it's not awkward if you're doing it right. It's awkward when you're doing it wrong. Asking for something when you don't deserve it at all because you've done a crappy job at keeping in touch, that's awkward. And networking is not like throwing business cards at people. Remember, it's all about helping other people get what they want. As soon as you need relationships, you're too late to make them. So we say dig the well before you're thirsty. If you haven't done that, I'm not saying it's your fault, you know, you're screwed. I'm saying the best time was 20 years ago and the second best time is right now. We stand today. The Business Method the business with method. a shout The Business Method. The Business Method Podcast. The Business Method Podcast featuring Chris Reynolds. Entrepreneurs, systems, methods, tools, and tactics. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, I'm your host, Chris Reynolds, and welcome to the Business Method Podcast, a podcast featuring high-performing entrepreneurs and high-caliber people dissecting their different methods, tools, and strategies so we can apply them to our businesses and lives. On our first series, we interviewed 100 entrepreneurs that have built businesses creating $100,000 or more annually. On our second series, we interviewed 100 entrepreneurs that have built seven-figure businesses that can be ran anywhere in the world. And currently, we are interviewing 100 major influencers to get behind the minds and the science of using influence to grow business, affect income, results, economies, and cultures, especially post-COVID. Since we moved into a post-pandemic world, the landscape has changed drastically for most business owners. We're finding out what is working for the entrepreneurs out there that have positioned themselves well to make sure their businesses thrive, succeed, and continue to experience growth in this current economy. And now, let's hop into today's show. The Business Method. Hello, podcast listeners. Welcome back to the show. Glad to have you. Today, you guys, we have Jordan Harbinger. And if you don't know who Jordan is, Jordan is one of the top podcasters on the planet, I would say. They have 6 million downloads per month on his podcast called The Jordan Harbinger Show. He's been podcasting for 12 years, I think, and uh, been a top iTunes podcaster for nearly that entire time. He's a master at networking, so I really enjoyed this interview because I love networking also, and I learned many tips from Jordan throughout the show. He's also really great at social engineering. We dive into the nuts and bolts of podcasting with Jordan, the strategies he uses, how he prepares. Literally, you guys, he's putting 10 to 12 hours in preparation time per interview and he has three interviews a week so it's like 20 to 30 hours per week that he is preparing for a show which is impressive because I doubt there's any other podcaster out there that is putting in that much time and then we dive into how he actually socially engineered this clever little act of getting a defense contractor to reveal confidential information to a total stranger and he did it on his phone in 10 hours it's really impressive jordan is a force guys he's exciting to talk to and to listen to and i think you'll learn a lot from this episode entrepreneurs systems methods tools and tactics Listeners, welcome to the podcast or welcome back to the podcast. I'm excited to introduce today's guest. And he's somebody that I've followed for quite a few years and wanted to get on the show for a while. I actually had to chase him down for about eight or nine months to get him on the show. And finally, we got him. Jordan is a Wall Street lawyer turned talk show host. Jordan has hosted a top 50 iTunes podcast for over 12 years and he speaks five languages. He's also worked for various governments and NGOs overseas and traveled through war zones. 
He'll tell you the only reason he's still alive and kicking is because his ability to walk into and out of just about any situation. Jordan, welcome to the show, man. How are you? Thanks for having me on, man. I appreciate it. How was that intro? Did I hit? Did I? Did I get it all right? Uh, you know, I would say, and uh, candidly, like you, you're a nice guy. Reading someone's bio as the intro is possibly the laziest thing you can do. <laughs> <laughs> it is a. It is actually a mixture of numerous different bios that you had on there. So it's not yeah. like just one copy and paste. But like I, true, edited, I edited a little bit. I put some time into it, man. No, I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I, I, I want to dive into like definitely touching on networking and social engineering and then talk mostly about podcasting. But something interesting that I found out about you is that you um, talked a defense contractor into revealing classified information to a total stranger in about 10 hours. And I'm curious, like what, what are some of the tactics off the top of your head that you used to help you tap into that and do that? Uh, yeah. So what I do when I do those types of things is create false belief systems. So it wasn't me just like sitting down with someone and being like, Hey, I'm going to convince you to tell me something secret. And they're like, no, you're not. And then they're like, yes, we are. I don't do that for 10 hours. It was like, it was a mixture of finding people online that I knew probably had classified or confidential information. I should say confidential, not classified confidential information. Um, because getting classified information could be a, you know, that could be a, that could be a crime. Uh, but getting confidential information, I mean, I don't know if it's confidential or not. So I find people that are likely to have confidential information and create a fake social media presence and website for somebody that I think they would be interested in. So in this case, I targeted a lot of defense contract engineers and then created a profile using my, at the time, my assistant, her photos and social media, except for instead of an aspiring actress or whatever she was doing at that time, she was uh, an engineering student at, I don't know, whatever, Cornell or something like that. Um, and that was really useful. And so she started adding people and messaging people and saying, hey, I'm looking to get into this kind of program or this kind of job. I don't know where to start with internships. My school's not very helpful. would love to talk on the phone. Uh, or something like that. And so a lot of these guys were like, yeah, when are you going to meet up? And so we created a lot of fake personality profiles and fake personas. And then she started asking questions about projects they were working on and things they were working in and areas where they were located. And then um, I started using things like phone number spoofing to create the illusion that I was calling from inside the company when I was calling from outside the company and creating phone calls and things like that. So asking for information that a lot of times people wouldn't mention, but if you create the illusion that you also already know the thing that they're going to tell you or that you're just going to use it. They're going to try and gauge or persuade you to be interested in what they're doing. They're going to try and sell you on this. So basically, I created a, a means by which a lot of these sort of engineer guys were like, wait, you mean to tell me that this attractive female engineer might want to take a job at our office in the middle of nowhere, which tests missile parts or missiles? And all I have to do is tell her what we're working on and make it really super interesting because she's deciding right now where to work. And she's calling from one of our offices or emailing from inside <laughs> the company or whatever, you know, like that kind of thing was really a no brainer for them. Right. And so, so did you, what inspired you to do that? Um, I, I was working on a social engineering project with somebody and they said, you know, if you want to make a footprint in the industry, you need to test something or break something or hack something. And I was like, I can pull off a little bit of a stunt. So 
that was my stunt. And then I got me a, a talk at a conference called DEF CON, which is like a major, it's like the major hacking, hacker <laughs> teleconference. And, and, or not teleconference, uh, and Vegas has like 16,000 attendees every year. And I went there and I worked at the Social Engineering Village, or presented, I should say, at the Social Engineering Village and ended up on NPR and things like that. Um, so yeah, it's kind of a, it was kind of a publicity stunt, but it didn't matter. I wasn't like selling consulting services or anything. I just wanted to expose a super obvious vulnerability in something because people are all, yeah, national security, this national security, that. And if they think for a second, they might get a date with a hot girl, they're like, screw it. And they throw it all out the window. <laughs> did, did you ever open up about the information that you did receive or the companies that you got information from? Just curious. Um, I had to show the information to, uh, some people that, like lawyers and stuff. And I did that because they could then say, sure looks legit to me without being like, here's a bunch of classified stuff that I'm going to blast out of the internet. Cause I don't want to damage these institutions or these people. You know, you don't want to get like a Senator from Ohio in trouble. You just want him to go, Ooh, that was kind of, that was not good. I should probably be careful about that. You don't want to get an engineer at Northrop Grumman fired. You just want him to go, Oh crap. You know, they said that this might happen. And I, my point was, and this is like six years ago now, or maybe even seven. I said, no, it was more than seven years ago now. I said, look, if I did this from my couch on my phone, imagine what you can do if you're China and you're the intelligence agency of China. Like you've got hundreds of people, you have tons of resources, you have capital, you have money. You know, of course, I can just hire people to do this and say, yeah, yeah, I'm an engineering student you know, hire some Russian model or something to take some photos that look legit, dress them up nice, make fake profiles, fake the social media account activity. Um, you can even have those same people or those agents, if they're actually agents, you can just, or operatives, you can just recruit them and they could actually go meet with these people in person and start relationships with them. I did this from my phone. Wow. And, and imagine, you know, what you can get if you trick someone into dating you for a year, <laughs> you know, like there's a lot more. And, and of course, this isn't, this isn't new. I mean, spycraft has been around since, since uh, the beginning of time. It's probably the oldest profession is prostitution. The second oldest one is probably espionage, maybe even in reverse order. Right. So, so like it's been around, I didn't invent this, but the idea that this would happen online seven years ago, people were like, yeah, online, uh, so what? I'm not going to give any confidential information out over Facebook. Okay, that's not what I'm asking you. I'm not sending you a DM on Twitter and being like, show me the plans for the B-52. Right. right. The stealth bomber. No, I'm just getting in good with people who are going to tell me a little bit of something that they shouldn't tell me because I'm making it really easy for them and making it really tempting and making it seem like there's no consequences from it. And I'm one guy with a few hours on the weekend to do this this wasn't like a part-time job. I mean, it literally took me 10 hours total. It wasn't even all in one day. Of course, it was spread out over time, but I don't think I spent even 12 or 15 hours by the time the whole thing was said and done. And that includes me creating my presentation. Wow. So like th this was such an obvious and easy vulnerability and I brought it to people's attention. Nobody cared. And then I talked about it at NPR and presented it and people did care. But um, the only people who seemed to actually care was the NSA. They were like, that's, that's <laughs> icky. And I was talking with, I think, General Alexander or whoever was in charge of the NSA. I was like, hey, you know, this is, um, this is a problem. And this is what I did. And he's like, well, thanks for your work. I'd love to see any sort of report that you have. And then you do a debrief with the people that wear dark glasses and they take you out for steak and you tell them exactly how you did it and what, <laughs> what you got. And they take a bunch of notes and then they probably use it to, I don't know, hopefully improve security or something. But uh, it was a cluster because now, now it's so obvious that people are 
using the internet to exploit people for information. And it's so obvious that catfishing is a thing. And it's so obvious that foreign intelligence agencies are busy. I mean, we had interference in the election. Whether or not there was collusion, you know, that's still up in the air or whether, you know, but whether, but the undebatable thing is that there was election interference. Like that's the one thing I think everybody except for crazies agree on at this point. Um, And so of course there was, why wouldn't there be if one guy with a cell phone or like an iPhone four or whatever the hell we had back then, 3G can create a, a giant mess in 10 hours. Imagine what somebody who says, all right, we have enough for 50 people in two years to create a big mess. What can we do? Well, you got, you got a multi-million dollar budget for intelligence, of course. I mean, LinkedIn has got to be one of the biggest vectors for intelligence right now. And people always just said, oh, it's ridiculous, it's social media. And I'm like, cool, well, I broke you in 10 hours. So cool, great job, everybody. <laughs> Congrats. From my standpoint, like this was just a basic like networking technique. You were yeah. you were pretending to be somebody, you connected with somebody, you just opened up and warmed up. So so how do you use base, those techniques in business and podcasting and and in and your life? Sure. Well, you know, frankly, a lot of what I think people say is like, oh, this is some sort of advanced thing is you can hear it. All I did was using very simple, like you said, networking techniques. And these are not complex. They were clever in the way that I used them and they were deceptive in the way that I used them. But you really don't have to do a lot of complex things to create business relationships. You don't have to be clever or sneaky. You really just have to start thinking about what value is in it for them. So while in my case with social engineering and exploiting those folks uh, with that particular presentation or experiment, while that made sense in terms of the type of victim or like target is what we call it, uh, that I would use, when you're looking at techniques to develop rapport with somebody, you don't have to trick them into thinking that they're talking to someone else or anything like that. You really just have to focus on what that person wants. And that's what I did in this case too, was uh, what, what does this person want? Oh, well, they're, they're working in the middle of nowhere. They're probably from a big city. They're really bored. They probably work with a bunch of dudes testing missiles in the desert. What happens if you throw an attractive female into the mix that has the same hobbies as them? Chaos ensues is the answer. So, I, I mean, I look at that when it's like, how do I get a hold of this person? Well, all right. Um, let's say I want to get a hold of a scientist and they're going to go to a conference. Well, I can go to that conference, but then I'm waiting in line to talk to them. Everybody else is waiting in line to talk to them. They have no reason to talk to me. What do they want? Well, let me look at their social media profiles or their personal life. All right. Maybe they want to, they love racquetball. Okay. Um, or squash or something. Okay. Um, let me find a squash court that's near where the conference is happening. I'll see if I can book a game there as a non-member. And then I'll, I'll write to that particular guy and I'll say, Hey, professor Galloway, I saw that you're going to be speaking here. I look forward to speaking with you. We share a common interest in North Korean craziness and racquetball. Are you going to catch a game while you're out there? And they're like, I don't know. Uh, yeah, maybe I'll see you at this conference. And then I send them an, another couple of articles on North Korea. And I say, hey, when I went to North Korea, I noticed this, this, and this. Have you? And they're like, whoa, you've been to North Korea? Because maybe they're interested in that kind of thing. Maybe they've given a talk about that. And then I'm like, yeah, well, I did this. Here's some photos. And they write back, fascinating, thanks. And I say, here's a couple more that I just dug up. Fascinating, thanks. Uh, you said you're going to be at that conference. I look forward to meeting you. And I said, yeah, you know, um, if you want, before your talk, why don't we catch a game of racquetball? at such and such club, it's not really that far. And I'm staying at this hotel. Maybe we can, if you're staying there, we can ride down together and we can catch a game. We can talk about North Korea. And, and I've done this before. And they're like, well, sure, sure. That sounds good. Cause now I kind of know them. They know I'm interested in North Korea. I'm not going to be like, hi, can I have a job in your lab? 
right? They're, they're not worried about that. And I'm not fighting a crowd to meet them. They're coming to me to play for an hour, hour and a half, whatever. So then, of course, I, I have all this one-on-one on, uh, on this. I have all this one-on-one time with this professor, this scientist. Everybody else after the talk just lines up in the front of the room and is like, ah, I, I, how do I get a job in a lab? And it's like, I don't know, send me a resume next, right? Like, that is the way to do it. Everyone's knocking on the front door. And meanwhile, you know, whereas with the social engineering experiment, I was kind of tunneling into the basement clandestine style. This was more <laughs> like, well, if everyone's at a line at the front door, uh, I'm going to tell you there's free ice cream down the street and I'll sit there and wait for you. Like, right. that's what I'm doing, you that's, know? That's very clever. Um, one of the things I use when networking, and it blows my mind how, how many people out there don't consider networking important, you know, or just don't make it part of their strategy at all. But um, I always look for the the leaders in the conferences and, and try to establish relationships and make them friends over the long term. And that seems to serve me really, really well. But I like this strategy as well. It's very clever. More on networking, Jordan. Are there any other like key strategies you use when when thinking about networking? Like, um, you know, you use this one. Is there any anything that you as, use on a regular basis that that really helps you out in your networking? Uh, yeah, I have a course called Six Minute Networking that's actually free, and it's full of like little drills that take maybe four to five to six, hence the name, minutes per day. And a lot of connections, they're weak or dormant ties. So they're like people that we talked to once two years ago and then we forgot about, but then we see them at another convention and we're like, hey man, and then we don't see them again. Those are weak or dormant ties. Or they're people that, like our old boss, you know, we, we were tight with them at some point, but then we moved on and six years have gone by and it's like, what's that person doing? And we see them occasionally pop up in our Facebook feed or something like that, you know, like six years ago, here was you at the company Halloween party, hanging out, you know, like that kind of thing. Every day I wake, when I wake up, well, not when I wake up, but probably about 10 uh, a.m. Because you don't do it when you wake up. If you catch somebody too early, they won't reply. But I'll do it at around 10 a.m. Pacific time. That way in New York, it's later. And then if you're in Hawaii, it's not like crushingly early. It's just early. And um, if you're anywhere in North America, it's kind of a fine time to get a text. And I'll scroll to the bottom of my texting application. And at the very bottom are those threads that have been dormant for a while. So those are the weaker dormant ties. So those might be folks that I met at a conference once, went out to lunch with, with a group, never kept in touch, but I have the phone number and the last text in there is like, yeah, everyone meet at 1230 at Cafe Gratitude or something like that, you know? And I'll send a message to those people who I haven't kept in touch with and I'll be like, hey, it's Jordan Harbinger. We met at FinCon 2015. Uh, hope you're well. I did a bad job keeping in touch. What's the latest with you? I just had a kid. So I haven't slept in months, you know, but it's worth it. What's, what's new with you? And those people will reply with what they're up to. Maybe half will, half won't. They reply with what they're up to. They reply with some of the things that they are doing, some of the things that are reacting to what I'm doing, or they'll say something like, oh, it's so funny, your name just came up, or I've been listening to your show, or, you know, hey, man, I haven't talked to you in forever, or you just don't hear from them. But if you're doing it four times a day, I call this drill Connect Four. If you do it like four times a day, and one person replies, one or two, you're re-engaging, let's say you only do it on weekdays. You're re-engaging like, you know, 80 people a month, something like that, right? That's a ton. So even if only a quarter of them, which is a pretty bad response rate, or low, I should say, not bad, but low, even if a quarter of them reply, that's 20, 20 25 weak or dormant ties that you have re-engaged that had never thought, would probably never have thought about you again, right? 
and they don't necessarily say like, hey, I want to buy your, your thing now that you've texted me twice. But what happens is over a period of weeks and months, it starts to compound and I'll be sitting at home and pretty much every morning or so, I'll get a text message from somebody that's like, well, the, the, it runs the gamut, but recently was one that said, hey man, uh, I'm stepping into a meeting right now. Do you still do keynote speeches? And I'd say, yeah, why? And they'll say, well, um, it's a sales meeting and we're looking for someone to keynote our sales conference. Uh, what's your usual budget? And we started talking about that and he's like, great, I'll hit you back this afternoon or tomorrow. And sure enough, I ended up with like a gig in South Florida that paid quite well. And obviously this person I hadn't talked to in years, they weren't going to throw my name in the hat for that gig. They weren't. They were going to say, I don't know who should speak. But since I was sort of top of mind because I'd spoken with them a few weeks before and they looked at what I was doing, they were like, oh, how about this guy? And so I ended up with a gig and I didn't do anything for that lead. I didn't have to close a deal. I didn't have to follow up rapidly with somebody and harass them for a business opportunity. I, all I had to do was re-engage and strengthen that relationship just a little bit. And when you do this in large numbers, you start getting a ton of opportunity. Or people will say things like, this is random, but since I'm talking with you, do you know anybody that does web design? And I'm like, yeah, I would love to refer my web designer. So my web designer is thrilled. And this person I texted is thrilled. And then my web designer is saying, here's a check for a thousand bucks. And next time I'm in town, I'm taking you out for a steak because I owe you one. You know, so like I'm getting referrals, I'm able to hook up people inside my network with one another, I'm getting job opportunities for people in my network, I'm getting paid speaking engagements, you know, it's, it's a, it, and it costs me like the same time that I would basically spend checking Instagram. So you're not spending that time doing anything else. People will say I'm too busy for this. It's just such bull. You're, you're not busy at all. You're, you're busy. Those, those people who say they're too busy, usually they tell me that like on Instagram chat. You know, oh, I'm too busy to do six-minute networking. Cool. How much time did you waste clicking on photos of people that you didn't know today? Oh, half an hour? <laughs> you yeah. know, like, I just don't. It's just such garbage, actually. I, can, I completely agree. When you talk to the average, even just the average entrepreneur, average person that's out there, like, going through the hustle, what do you think they, the average person, like, as a pro networker, what, what do they not see that you see? Ah, so what, what people don't see is that uh, there's a few things. One, as soon as you need relationships, you're too late to make them. So we say dig the well before you're thirsty because if you're like, oh, I need to finish my prototype, I need to finish my website, I need to finish this, that, and the other thing first, go ahead. But when you're done with your website and you have a prototype and you call me and you tell me that you want to get coffee, I'm just going to say no. Who are you? Why would I help you? <laughs> Yeah. Oh, you're ready for my help now? I'm so flattered. Go fly a kite. I don't care. Who are you? So, you know, and, and that might sound callous, but who would you rather help? Somebody who you've talked to on and off for two years and they've been cool and they maybe helped you with a couple of random things by email or text or somebody who like cold calls you and is like, hey, what's up, buddy? Uh, anyway, I need a job. You know, like screw those people. They're just takers. And that's how everybody feels when they, they feel like they're being used by those people. And those people generally are just, and here's the thing, those people kind of know they've screwed up. That's why they say, ooh, networking is awkward. No, no, no. Asking for something when you don't deserve it at all because you've done a crappy job at keeping in touch because you're self-important or you're wrapped up in your own stuff, that's awkward. Exactly. It's, it's never awkward for me to ask somebody for something because I, I keep in touch with people regularly. So it's, it's as simple as shooting somebody a text that I probably talked to you at the most six months ago. How do you measure what the ask is worth? Like I think of my 
you know, a Rolodex of people. There's some people that I, I, I will ask certain things and others that I won't. And some people I keep in the back pocket for like a rainy day or, you know, if, or even some people for if the shit hits the fan. So you just, uh, over the past few years went through a transition, uh, working with an old company into, uh, creating your, more of your personal brand and now the current podcast. And I know I listened to you on another podcast where you were talking about this process. So, uh, and how humbling it was and how you kind of had to start from nil. So I'm curious, you had created a lot of success and then started from nil and it, but you had your network and you started reaching out, asking people for support. How did you go through that decision-making process of like, this is a good person, this is not a good person, ask for help now? Um, if you could elaborate on that a bit. Sure. So a lot of, there's sort of a misconception here. A lot of people, I think you'd mentioned like, I save stuff for a rainy day or when stuff hits the fan. Honestly, that's not really that useful. I mean, when if you hoard your network or if you don't use a connection, it atrophies. And here's an example. Somebody told me like, Oh, yeah, there's an editor, a pop. Well, I'm trying to do this. There's a really popular book out that a friend of mine wrote. And I said something like, yeah, I was talking to so-and-so last couple months and uh, they're doing this and this now. And if that's so apropos, our current conversation, you know, and the person said, oh, yeah, I haven't talked with him in a while. And I said, oh, yeah, why not? Well, I only want to call him if I really, really need something. I'm like, well, when's the last time you talked to them? Three years ago. Well, how strong do you think that relationship is, dummy? You haven't talked to him for three years because you're waiting until you need something big. That's literally the opposite of how relationships work, right? Like, if you need something big, shouldn't you have a strong relationship with that person? You don't call someone, hey, I haven't bothered you for anything in three years, but can you promote my book now? Wait, who's who this new phone? Who, what, who is this person? No, it's the person who you like send them something or you talk with them regularly and you're of value in their life. And then you say, hey, I know this is a big ask, but would you mind like posting about my book and your social, you have a massive following of readers. Like that's how you do that. And these people are like, oh, I'm going to wait until I really need something. Well, good luck. I'm never going to answer somebody I haven't talked to in five years because they really need something. Unless they're like, I have cancer. You know, like, can you donate a kidney? You're the only match in America. Like, yeah, okay, I got you. You know, just as a human. But if you're like, I haven't texted you in a really long time, but now I really need something. Well, why didn't you text me in a really long time? Oh, because you didn't need anything from me? No, thanks. Bye. So yeah, like when I, when I look at who can I ask for help, it's who has something that uh, I think could be potentially helpful or might know somebody that could be potentially helpful, which is literally like everyone. So yeah, when things went down, I asked pretty much everyone for help. There were a few exceptions because I have some friends who are like true celebrities where everyone asks them for stuff all of the time and they put those people in a compartment and somebody who's like, but these are actual celebrities. They're not like some influencer on the internet. You know what I mean? These are like people who are constantly being asked for stuff. And even then I told them what happened and they were like, I'm going to help you. Thank you. That's really kind of you. But I didn't say, so this is weird, but on your TV show, can you mention my podcast? Because I'm screwed They're, They would be like, uh, I have to say no. And now it's going to be weird between me and Jordan. I don't want to do that, but that's rare. If you don't have friends who are like on Bravo's five nights a week and reruns, you don't have this problem, you know? So like you, Bravo's a TV channel in the United States. For those of you who are listening, we're like, what the hell is he talking about? But the other people that I know who are just like really busy or really successful, I don't, I don't shy away from, those are the first people that I call, not the last people that I call. Elaborating on that some more, could you give some, some examples? So 
for you, it was really humbling to go through that process. So, so what I've heard, did you have any fears or challenges going out and asking for support when you were rebuilding yourself? No, no, because I dug the well before I got thirsty. Now, thank God that I'd said that I thank God I practiced what I preached, right? I was texting people every day. I was writing regular emails to people and keeping their address in a CRM so that if I didn't talk to them for 90, 120 days, I got a reminder. You know, I was following the stuff. I, I, I wrote the course six minute networking and gave it away for free because it's really useful. I also practice what I preach in that course. So like the idea behind it is this is stuff that will help you get ahead uh, with your network and do so in a way that's not going to cost you a lot of time or money. If I wasn't doing that, that would really suck. I would have been screwed actually. But I didn't, the, the point is a lot of people think, and I mentioned this before, oh, uh, networking is really awkward. No, it, it's not awkward if you're doing it right. It's awkward when you're doing it wrong because you know you screwed up. And so if you're like, oh, I don't know how to reach out to people. Yeah, you do. You do. You reach out to people all the time. It's just that when you don't need something, it's fine. But when you go, oh, I've really blown it and I've been totally selfish for the last two years and I haven't talked to this person. And, the, you know, like, you know, you screwed up when you go to text someone and the last three texts they sent you are unanswered because you were busy. And now you're like, hey, just seeing this. Hey, 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 hey uh, can you sell my Herbalife like bullshit protein shakes? And they're just like, go away. No. Or they just don't answer you. And, and if they're anything like me, I know that they're not, they're, in all likelihood, look, you're not just seeing this. Maybe you are, but probably not. Because statistics show that something like 99 point whatever, so like 100% of text messages are read within 10 minutes. And you're not the exception to that. Like, you might be disorganized and have a bunch of unread texts, but you've read them. You saw them come in. You know, so people who are like, oh, just seeing this, even if you ignore all of your texts and all of your social media, why are you looking at the thread now? Oh, because you were going to reach out to me and ask for something? Okay, well, why should I do that? <laughs> it's so right? true, like, man. Yeah, yeah. people people are delusional. They're like, oh, man, sorry, I just never checked my texts. Oh, well, what made you do it today? Oh, you need a house sitter? Nope. <laughs> very true, very true. Let's move into talking about podcasting. So you have been podcasting for about 12 years and you've been you've had one of the top podcasts nearly through that entire time. Uh, now you're running the Jordan Harbinger show and you guys are doing 6 million downloads per per month. And actually we had a guy on the show once and he said podcasting was the best networking hack in the world. And I think it is one of the best networking hacks as well. I like, like to get your perspective. Are, are we in the infancy stages of podcasting middle stages? Or do you think, what do you think is going to happen over the next decade with podcasts? You know, I think it's going to, well, first of all, the market share will grow into the billions. Uh, we're supposed to hit like a billion dollars as an industry next year or this year. So that's, that's an obvious foregone conclusion. And as the technology gets better and the reach gets wider and it starts to become more widely consumed, because I think only like a third of Americans have ever listened to a podcast or something like that. I can't remember the stats. Pretty soon it'll be like close to 100%, just the same percentage of Americans that are, let's say, able to access YouTube, right? So it'll be very, very common. We'll, fit, we'll have 
gotten into a space where discoverability is starting to get better. Hopefully, you know, Google will eventually enter the market. They haven't done squat with it for forever now. They'll try to figure out how they can use it. And that will sort of open it up. It'll become a lot more accessible to people. Android will eventually have some sort of built-in player, which it sort of does, but doesn't really right now, which is like, you know, 80% of the world or something. And it'll eventually start to overtake radio. It won't kill radio. TV never killed radio. Podcasting has a better chance of killing or damaging radio than TV ever did. But this long-form audio is not really going anywhere. And people are like, ah, what about self-driving cars? Then people won't need to listen because a lot of it's listened to during a commute. And I'm like, what do you think you're going to do in the damn car, dude? What do you think you're going to do in the car? And what are you going to do when you're working out? What are you going to do when you're walking outside? Like, sure, some people don't consume anything, but the vast majority of people do like to listen to things. And once people start to figure out that they don't have to listen to the same eight tracks by Katy Perry and Justin Bieber every single day for three hours, they're going to make the switch. It's, it's been slow because there's technological hurdles and things like that that um, Apple, Google, and uh, other companies have done pretty much jack squat to overcome. But Spotify has entered the game and they've spent close to, I think, like half a billion or, or actually more than that dollars on podcasting. They're betting the whole company on podcasting. And they are pretty, they're a pretty tech forward company. So they're going to figure out how to get it into more people's ears, which is going to be really good for the industry, as long as everybody else doesn't just sleep on it and let uh, Spotify take over. So I'm, I'm kind of excited for that. I mean, years ago, I predicted that cars would have data and I was totally right about that. Um, Tesla, even now, cars are slow to get data, but there are plenty of cars and trucks, especially like Tesla and things like that, that have Wi-Fi hotspots in them, that stream their audio, that don't just listen to, you know, terrestrial radio. And that will only increase. You know, Tesla right now in the United States has, I think, like either planned to or just gotten Spotify inside it. They're doing a deal now. Right now, they only have TuneIn, which nobody uses. Like TuneIn's, probably 90% of TuneIn's market share is people in Teslas, right? So if you've got a Spotify account and you're using Spotify on your phone and then you get in the car and it just hands off, pod, podcasting's going to be everywhere. Same with music, but podcasting goes where music goes. That's the same thing like radio. You know, people didn't get sick of radio. It's more popular now than ever. Right. So, and I just saw on the, on the topic of Spotify, I just saw that Spotify uh, is up to about 50% of the market next to Apple. Did you hear that too? Yeah, that's completely untrue. I, I, I'm okay. not sure who wrote that, but it is. there's no set of measurements which gets you there. It's just not true at all. I think there was some sort of study that has widely just been laughed off because they're also like, and Google has this. And we're like, Google, that app you listed doesn't exist. Well, oh, I, I remember what it was. The same study said Google Music also has X percent. And it's like Google Music doesn't have podcasts. So whoever wrote that was just... Uh, they had their heads so far up their own butt, they didn't even realize what they were doing. They, they either made the number up completely out of whole cloth or they talked to their friend who's an intern at Spotify and the guy said, I don't know, like half, bro. And he wrote that in an article. There's no, there's no metric which gets you there. Apple has about 60%. Spotify at, at its most generous has like 10 or 11% of the market in North America. Um, and maybe if you look at the, maybe the stats are like, Spotify has the potential to reach X number of people across the whole globe. And theoretically, if those people could listen to Spotify, they could also listen to podcasts on Spotify. And it's like, yeah, great. Um, no, that's not how that works. So no, Spotify's percentage is either, at the most generous estimate is double digits. Um, but double digits as in 10, not double digits as in half. They're not even close. It's not even, it's not even remotely close. Good to know. Good to know. So when rebuilding your, yourself as a podcaster, 
can you take us through the strategy that you used and implemented starting from ground zero to hitting, you know, top iTunes podcast in less than a year, I think, right? Yeah. Um, you know, it's this isn't a replicable strategy, so it's not that valuable to your listeners. I called all of my friends that I had in high profile places that could share my stuff. And I had a pre-existing podcast audience from my last company that was searching for me as soon as I went off the air, so to speak. So that immediately catapulted me to the top. And some people are like, oh, great. Who cares about this? It's all about who you know. Uh, I highly recommend using the networking techniques we mentioned earlier to make it's all about who you know your unfair advantage, not just mine. So a lot of people will be like, oh, I can't replicate that. Yeah, you can't replicate that, but you can sure dig into it. Most people don't realize that, yes, it is all about who you know. So get off your ass and start generating relationships. You know, don't just sit there and cry about how somebody got promoted over you because they're better at making relationships. That's your fault. You have not done that. You kept your head down and you were a good worker. You know, like you should be a good worker. You should work hard. Work ethic is my competitive advantage. But my other competitive advantage is I know a lot of people. And the reason is because I put the work in to do that. And people should also do that. If you haven't done that, I'm not saying it's your fault, you know, you're screwed. I'm saying the best time was 20 years ago and the second best time is right now. So if you're not networking and you're saying, or creating relationships, and networking is not like throwing business cards at people. Remember, it's all about helping other people get what they want, right? That's the whole point is making useful introductions, doing things that are helpful for them. The more you do that, the better off you're going to be uh, when it comes to being able to reach out to these people. And so that is, that is what's useful uh, for you when it comes to this. And so I think people who are not doing that, you really need to pay attention to the level of effort that you're putting in or not putting in because you, you kind of control your destiny when it comes to this. Like there might be somebody right now who's better connected, but there's no excuse in a year for you to still be in the same place you are right now. Yeah. Other than networking, Jordan, uh, is there a strategy that you would recommend either people thinking about podcasting or new podcasters to use? Strategy for what, I guess, is the question. Publishing daily, um, short podcasts versus long podcasts, uh, picking the right niche, picking the right categories, um, promotions on social media, this sort of thing. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't, it's hard to say none of those are going to do anything unless it matches your goals. And that's kind of beyond the scope of what we have time for here. But like, if your goals are to do really short podcasts and get into people's ears for five minutes, then yeah, publish every day and do that. But if your goals are to help your audience, which is why I recommend starting podcasting, like always have in mind value for your audience. That's the only, those are the only people that really matter. It's not you as a host that matters then I would say focus on doing one really good show every two weeks or every week and, and create something that your listeners are like, dang, that was really good and really useful. Um, it doesn't have to be long. It doesn't have to have great high profile guests or anything like that. Like what I do on the Jordan Harbinger show is I just try to make everything as useful for the audience as possible. I'm not trying to become friends with Chelsea Handler or whoever I'm interviewing that day. I'm not trying to get more likes on Instagram. I'm trying to get her to teach the audience something that they can use. Otherwise, there's just no reason for people to listen to me. I'm not trying to create fans of me. I'm not, I'm not trying to create fans of Jordan Harbinger. I'm trying to get people to improve themselves using useful things. And if the person teaching that is a college professor at a liberal arts college in Central Florida, then that's who I'm getting. And if it's Howie Mandel, then that's who I'm getting. So 
you have to really be aware of what you want out of it. Most people will lie to themselves. They'll be like, I just want to create something great that makes an impact on people. And then all of their actions are like, mm, I'm pretty sure you just want to be an Instagrammer that has people say how cool you are on the internet because that's what you're doing. That's where your work is. You know, you're doing 17 stories a day and you're posing for all this stuff and you're making a fake red carpet for yourself and you made a movie about yourself. None of that is valuable to your audience. That is all about you. So as soon as you like, as soon as you're honest with yourself about what you're getting from it, you'll have a much easier time. It, like if you're going to sort of narcissistically create an influencer brand, then go ahead, but don't pretend like it's for other people. It's for you. So I know that you spend an incredible amount of time preparing for each podcast, like 10 to 12 hours, reading books, doing research. And I'm guessing this is the reason, right? So you can provide a better show for the listeners. Um, and you're doing, are you doing three shows a week now? Is that right? Yep. Three shows a week. And, and two of those are interviews and then one on Friday, which is uh, like an informative show or we're talking about uh, no, a letter, a letter comes in and you share that you reply to a letter from a listener, correct? Yeah, I do. It's, it's a bunch of listener questions on Friday. So advice okay. on Friday. So actually Daniel Levine told me this about you. He said during Fireside Conf, uh, he asked you to interview somebody and you went into a cabin and spent like the next 24 hours studying this person and reading their book. So I don't know anybody else that spends that, that amount of time preparing for podcast interviews. Why do you spend that much time doing it? Uh, well, the thing is most people who do interviews, they do like 15 to 20 minutes of preparation and you can tell. So what's if it's easier to do that, which it is, right? So if a thousand people want to do a podcast, and truthfully, it's like a hundred thousand. Hundred thousand, two hundred thousand people are doing prepping. What percentage are gonna spend 20 minutes prepping? What percentage are gonna spend 15 hours prepping? Well, probably like a fraction of a percent are gonna spend 15, 10, 15, 20 hours prepping. So if that's me, then I should be able to create better content than the person who spent 20 minutes prepping because I have more information. I have a better handle on the concepts. I understand more about what the person is doing. And so therefore, I've got a chance at creating better work product. Now, this allows me to keep par with somebody who's, let's say a professional comedian is like, I'm going to do an interview podcast. Well, great. They're probably much more funny than I am. And what if somebody who has like 20 years of experience in an industry is going to do an interview pro podcast with somebody in, in that industry? Well, they're going to have much more experience than me. So if I outwork those people, I have a competitive advantage that they don't, just like they have a competitive advantage that I don't. But instead, what 99.9% .9 of podcasters do is they have absolutely no humor or talent. They don't have any experience in that industry or they have only a little. So then they put in the minimal amount of work and then their show is just like everyone else's. There's absolutely nothing that sets it apart. So for me, I know I have to set my show apart and I can't really get funnier overnight and I'm probably not going to gain experience overnight because that's not how experience works. So all I can do is outwork everyone. And I know that I will because most people aren't willing to do the work. So I really have a competitive advantage that's built in that other people just are too lazy to replicate, which is great. I love that. You know, when I was in law school, I was there with a bunch of smart kids and a lot of them didn't have to show up to class. I studied 16 hours a day and I graduated in the top third of the class. A lot of those guys didn't do so well. And the reason was because they were smart and they never had to work for anything. So when it actually got hard, they were totally screwed. And some of the people were really smart and they were able to coast and they were able to graduate at the same level or ahead of me and that's fine. But where would I have been, where would I have been if I didn't do the work? I would have been totally screwed. I was outgunned by everyone. 
So I, I take that same mindset into podcasting. I, I don't have the ability to coast on talent. And most people that think they do really do not. Um, and if they really want to sort of see if they do or not, I, I think we only have to look at certain download numbers, right? Like when you see a celebrity get into podcasting and they're like, yeah, well, we're pretty confident so-and-so is going to do really well because he's famous. Go ahead, see how well they're doing after a year. And then when you're like, why the hell isn't this working? Well, maybe they're not good at this because they didn't put in the work and they're not improving. It's great that you're uh, awesome on your on a reality TV show and that you, you know, look good in a bikini, but you're not doing this well and you're not working hard. You expected your fans to come to you because that's what happens in other mediums or media and that doesn't work here. So this for me is great because it's kind of the great equalizer. You might come in with a million followers on some other social media, but I can whoop your butt in the podcasting realm. I'm not going to go out and become an Instagram influencer and beat all these other YouTubers and stuff. It's not going to happen. But what I can do is dominate in this. And this happens to be a really good niche to dominate because CPMs, uh, uh, advertisers pay are like $40. And if you're on YouTube, you get like one, between one and $5. So you literally need YouTube, uh, a YouTube channel that gets like 10 million plus downloads or streams views per video to compete with my show that I do in my underwear. Mm. And I can do three a week. How many 10 million view YouTube videos can you do in a week? Nice. And, and can you do them when you're older than 17 or 21 or however old these people are? Like, what are they <laughs> going to do when they're 40? I know for me, podcasting, it's kind of just like radio. Larry King's still doing it. So I have a pretty good shot at being able to continue doing this for the next several decades. That's absolutely amazing. So uh, literally, I mean, that's, that's, you're getting up to like 20 to close to 30 hours per week prepping for a show. Is that right? Or prepping for your weeks? Yeah, I would say so. Okay. What do you, what do, you do during a prep time? So say you're interested in um, somebody coming on the show and you're like, okay, let's learn about this person. What, what content are you consuming to make sure you do have a good podcast? Right. So I read their whole book. If they have a book, I will look at the top negative Amazon reviews. Not the, not the ones that are like, oh, the book came damaged. You know, I, I want a refund. The ones that are like, yeah, I'm also a molecular biologist. And I got to tell you, there are eight things wrong with this person's book. And then they write like a three paragraph, five paragraph, 10 paragraph review of the book. Those are really useful because they're critiques, they're honest critiques. And then I'll look at their Wikipedia page since most of the people on the Jordan Harbinger show are public figures. I will look at the Wikipedia page and then I will also make sure that I'm familiar with the latest news about them. So it's, it's not rocket science. You know, the Wikipedia thing most people don't think about because um, they don't look at the talk page, which is where there's debate about what to go in the article. They don't read the book because they're too lazy and they don't read the Amazon because they don't think about it. But it's not rocket science. Like this is stuff that anyone can do. It's just that most people don't want to do it. So they won't. And so it, it, I recommend starting there. You can go from there. Now, when I get like a really big, interesting guest, sometimes, especially if they're a really big public figure, I will try and find people that have known them for 10, 20 years. And I'll reach out to people that I know are mutual friends. And I'll be like, tell me a funny story about... Uh, Shaquille O'Neal. And they'll be like, oh man, when I met Shaquille, it was 2002 and da, da da something, something. And I'm like, oh, tell me a funny story. So I'll bring that up during the interview. And he hasn't heard or thought about that for two decades. So we start off on the right foot. We get a lot of rapport going and it really starts something. It's something he's never talked about anywhere else because maybe even he forgot. So that does a lot for the interview. And um, other interviewers don't do that. The only other interviewer that does that, his name is Nardwar. He's like a music journalist or something, and he's on YouTube. He's a very, very strange guy. But he does all this crazy prep where 
he finds things that like Snoop Dogg liked as a kid and will like find one on eBay, buy it and give it to him as a gift. It's really, really awesome. And people aren't putting in that amount of work. You know, Nardwar is an interesting, super talented, uh, hardworking guy. And that's why he's a great interviewer. It's not just his quirky personality. And so I try to mimic that. You know, I try to just get the resources that are out there. I don't have to use any sort of spy stuff. Sometimes I do, but very rarely. The majority of what people want to do, like 95% of what people want to achieve is just going to get done through work. None of, all the stuff that all these influencers, these secret you know, tactics, all of it is garbage. It's not even true. It's just something they want to sell you. So as soon as you realize that and you realize it's just about work, you can stop, for, you can stop thinking about all of the tricks and the masterminds and all this other stuff. It's all garbage. You're not going to get anything from that. It's just a way for that influencer to make money. Just sit down and do the work and you'll, you'll do something. And then, you know, when you get to 99%, then you can start looking for tactics, but you're not going to get there for at least a decade. Nice, man. That's an incredible answer. And I think a really good place to wrap up the podcast today. Um, Jordan, I want to give you a huge thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for sharing all your tips and tricks and wisdom with us. If the listeners want to reach out and learn more about you or what you have going on, where's the best place they can do that at? Sure. So you're listening to a podcast, definitely check out the Jordan Harbinger show. I do a lot of interviews that, as you've heard, with uh, people that I think are amazing. And I do a ton of work to make sure that they teach you something you can use and that's useful. So whether it's about the protests in Hong Kong or how to create, uh, how to manage your emotions better, or I'm talking with, you know, Kobe Bryant or Chelsea Handler or Howie Mandel, you know, I try to really get inside people's heads and, and that's what I do. So check out the Jordan Harbinger show. Or if you're into the networking stuff, uh, six minute networking is my free thing. There's no upsell. It's actually just free. I know that's hard to believe, but that's at uh, <laughs> jordanharbinger.com slash course, jordanharbinger.com slash course. Perfect. We'll put the links in the show notes. And and for, for the listeners, I was scrolling through a list of Jordan's guests and all of the guests made me want to listen to, to the episodes. So um, check out his podcast, you guys. We're going to wrap up there. Jordan, again, thank you so much for coming on the show. And listeners, thank you for tuning in once again, and we'll see you on the next episode. Goodbye, everybody. Hey listeners, thanks for joining us once again. We wanted to remind you about our high performance productivity coaching and our five, six, seven, and eight figure private masterminds. These are all designed for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs to help you scale rapidly and grow. Check out all the details at thebusinessmethod.com. That's thebusinessmethod.com. And we'll see you all on the next episode.